Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm excited to bring you today's program for a couple of reasons. The first, of course, is that the topic is something that I've been getting a lot of questions about, microdosing. But the other reason is that I'm very pleased to play an interview from a major public event whose producer is one of our fellow saloners, Mike Margolis. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you'll remember Mike as part of the Symposia team who, along with Lex Pelger, did that uh, Blue Dot tour from which we've been able to listen to many hours of great stories from psychonauts all across this land. Today, Mike is living in San Francisco, where he has helped to launch the Psychedelic Seminars Project, in which he interviews guests in a theater setting that's also a live stream event. In fact, just a few days from now, his next program is going to take place, and I'll put a link to that uh, in today's program notes, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com, but here are the details. On Wednesday, May 15th, Mike's guest is going to be Dr. Raquel Bennett, and the topic of their conversation is going to be ketamine, foreshadowing the psychedelic medicine landscape. And uh, even if you aren't in San Francisco in that area, you can at least uh, watch their conversation on a live stream. And as you'll hear in just a few minutes, uh, these are really interesting conversations that Mike hosts. And uh, in fact, the one that I'm about to play for you is no exception. I remember uh, hearing last year about this woman attorney who wrote a book that's titled A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. (laughs) And uh, while I'm a lawyer myself, uh, I retired long ago, and my children by then were already uh, established uh, before I took the chance of going public about my own psychedelic use and uh, started these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. But uh, compared to the risk that Elliot uh, Waldman took in publishing a book about microdosing in, well, during today's uncertain political atmosphere, well, my own little coming out was a relative non-event. Elliot's courage far surpasses that of a lot of people that I know. And the other person that Mike interviews here is Jim Fadiman. For our longtime saloners, uh, well, you've heard from Jim in several other podcasts. In fact, uh, after Jim's landmark book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, was published, my friend Matt Palomary, who, in fact, we just heard from last week. Well, uh, Matt came here to the salon, and together we interviewed Jim. And uh, that interview you can listen to uh, in Salon's podcast number 302. And by the way, if you don't already have a copy of that book, well, you ought to yourself to buy one. If you only have one book in your psychedelic library, Jim Fadiman's Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, well, that should be it. And uh, in case you don't already know this about Jim Fadiman, in my opinion, he is our most senior psychedelic elder. Just look at who he's worked with, and uh, dare I say tripped with as well? (laughs) Who knows? Uh, I don't. But uh, who else can say that they've had experiences of one kind or another with the legendary Al Hubbard, who was often called the Johnny Appleseed of LSD back in the 50s? 
And in addition to working with Hubbard, Jim was also Myron Stolaroff's closest associate during the hundreds of psychedelic experiments carried out at the Menlo Park facility. Plus, another of the superstars who Jim knew and worked with was Humphrey Osmond, the man who actually coined the word psychedelic. <laughs> well, there's a lot more about Jim's deep connection to our community that I'd like to tell you about, but uh, let me get out of the way right now and play this recording of, a, I think, an extremely interesting and uh, timely conversation about microdosing that took place between two people whose books and other work have played a really significant roles in the current interest in microdosing psychedelic medicines. We're ready to get the seminar started. I'm going to bring up your three, your host and your two guests. We have an amazing panel tonight. Your first host, the host of the evening, is Mr. Mike Margulies, the founder of Psychedelic Seminars. Give it up for Mike Margulies. Yes. Amazing. Oh. oh, I thought you oh, were yeah, introducing yeah, me yeah, out. So, hey. Yeah, yeah. One, more, one more time for Mike Margulies. All right. And our first guest of the evening is Ayelet Wallman. She's the author of A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. She was a federal public defender and a professor at UC Berkeley Law School where she developed and taught a course on the legal implication on the war of drugs. She's doing amazing work. Give it up for Miss Ayelet Wallman. Thank you very much. Thank you. And our final guest, I'm so excited to bring him out, is Dr. Jim Fadiman. Yeah. Jim Fadiman, who is a psychologist who's been involved with psychedelic research since the 1960s. He's the author of the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which popularized the modern wave of microdosing. And that doesn't even scratch the surface. I asked him backstage, what would you like me to introduce you as? And he said, just tell him I've been doing LSD since it's been legal. Okay. That's, that's fair. <laughs> so please, give it up for Mr. Jim Fadiman. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. All right. Um, well, thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you, everyone who's here in San Francisco and everyone who's watching online. Ayelet and Jim, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Uh, so I, I'm really a big fan of stories, so I think a great way to kick us off um, would be, Ayelet, your personal story that you share in the beginning of the book. You know, how did you end up into microdosing and Briefly, with Jim? Briefly, um, so I ended up out of desperation. I didn't come to microdosing through psychedelics or an interest in psychedelics. I came to microdosing through an interest in not killing myself. Um, I, had a, I have a mood disorder, and I had a very well-controlled mood disorder um, until I went into the to perimenopause, which is the period before menopause. And then the medications that I've been work using on a very strict schedule to control my uh, mood disorder, which was closely tied to my periods, just stopped working. And I explored all sorts of different uh, medications, traditional pharmaceuticals, and nothing worked. And I was getting more and more and more desperate until I found myself, you know, evaluating the contents of my medicine cabinet to see what would kill me most efficiently. And at that point, um, when you're a writer, I'm primarily a novelist, uh, but also right now I'm fiction. When you're a writer, books kind of come into your house. You don't really know why. They just sort of show up. And I taught for many years. I wasn't a professor at uh, Bolt Hall. I taught for many years a seminar on the war on drugs and did drug policy reform work. So drug books would come into my house. And um, Jim's book showed up in my house. I must have bought it 
<laughs> I think. I'm not sure why, but I'll be honest. The first time I saw it, I was like, I'm not a psychedelic explorer, so I didn't look at it. Um, and then somehow fortuitously, when I needed it most, I picked it up in this period that I was so depressed and um, was so uh, was was contemplating permanent solutions to my depression. And I was reading through the book, and right away I found this um, chapter on microdosing, and I read it very avidly, um, obviously paying closest attention to the effects of microdosing on depression. And then I went online, and I found this interview with Jim in which he talked about how microdosing doesn't cause you to hallucinate. It's subperceptual. It doesn't. It's not about you know seeing kaleidoscopic colors. It's in the way he recounted it was the way that one woman who had experienced it told him. She said that at the end of the day, she looked back and she thought, "Oh, that was a really good day," and that phrase just resonated for me because I had been all but anhedonic for. Is for months, maybe even longer, and I had not had anything approaching a really good day. And I did something that is sort of the height of chutzpah. I got in touch with Jim, and he's this incredibly generous, loving person, and he spoke to me on the phone for a long time and about why I was, what I was looking for and why I was looking. And, um, and then eventually I decided to try a 30-day experiment, microdosing with LSD, and to write a book about the experiment. Amazing. Um, and yeah, <laughs> really awesome. And Jim, actually, there's an unlikely story you have of how that chapter ended up in the book in the first place that was from a misunderstanding. Well, I have to admit, everything that I have written as absolutely the necessities of microdosing are both I made it up and most of it's wrong. <laughs> In other words, real science. <laughs> <laughs> I understood that Albert Hoffman, who lived to be 102, and at age 100 was giving several hour long lectures, had some good ideas about health, aside from having created LSD. And I understood that he microdosed with 10 micrograms or so fairly often, and that was the secret of his excellent health. Totally wrong. <laughs> he attributes his excellent health, among other things, to an inversion table every day, um, eggs for breakfast, and a few kind of healthy things like that. He did take l very low doses, 20 or more, when he would take walks in the woods, they helped him clarify his thoughts. So it had nothing to do with what I was inventing. But I told everybody I was inventing it because Albert Hoffman had done that. So somehow it, it seemed to me that 10 micrograms was a, a, good, a good amount that would perhaps have effects because I'd talked to several people who had done in that range and they said it had good effects. So what I do is um, kind of what I now have called citizen science which is called asking your friends and a lot of my friends were happy to find out. They said never took anything that low. <laughs> so people would take 10 micrograms and they would as, as I had said they would feel better. They would have a good day they would have no psychedelic effects, which disappointed most of them. 
<laughs> and gradually, friends talked to friends who talked to people they didn't know that well to talk to people in other states. And I would start to get these reports because that was my request. And early on, it turned out for many people that not only 10 micrograms was nice in whatever way that means, and we'll spend time on it, I'm sure, but it seemed to have a two-day effect, which is something which those of you who have had more than 10 micrograms, and although the, the lights are out, I can see you, and a couple of you who came with friends, I can see you too, but you don't know why you're here. <laughs> but 10 micrograms seem to have a two-day effect. And then I, I realized one of the things that us high-dose explorers of many years had always neglected was the fact that a high-dose had a many, 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 many days effect. You know, all of you know that LSD takes 8 to 12 hours, psilocybin is 5 to 7, DMT is whoosh. <laughs> but we all kind of neglected what we what we all did call the glow, the afterglow. Mm -hmm. Now the people doing ibogaine for uh, getting rid of addiction, they're really clear about that afterglow is absolutely critical. But we kind of ignored it. But the fact is, when you take a psychedelic, it leaves your body fairly soon. But its effects don't leave for quite a long time. So anyway, there was two days at least. So that seemed like thrifty to not take it every day. Right. So and then since I wanted to know what the effects were, I said to people, don't take it on that third day. And they said, why? And they said, because I want you to come down so you can tell the difference. And they said, what do you care? And I said, well, that's my game is I like to find out what people experience. So I would get reports of people who were taking it on day one, perhaps seeing it on day two. Several people said day two was even better. Day three, they would be down. And day four, they'd say, whoa, yeah, I remember day one. So I began to develop the notion that people would tell me stuff. Now, how long would people tell me stuff who were getting no benefit from it and were missing that third day from their point of view? I figured maybe a month. So I came up with a notion of please take psychedelics, various kinds, LSD, mushrooms, etc., on that schedule for a month and let me know. And after the month is over, do whatever you want. That has been translated into, and I read it in places, the Fadiman Protocol locks you into a lifetime of one day on, two days off and the dose is limited to whatever it is you read. That's science. <laughs> <laughs> and that's media. See, it's really hard for media to grab the extra sentence, which is after the month, do what's correct for your own body. That's not a very interesting sentence, so it rarely appears. Mm. But while you're here, and while you streamers are here, that's the way it was developed, which is to try and explore the space, the kind of event space of microdosing. Mm. And one of the most successful spacers <laughs> <laughs> is on my right, because Ayla was as interested in what was going on for her 
as in general what was going on in her life so she started keeping these wonderful observations and I would get these lovely little reports with little boxes and this attitude and this behavior because I have OCD you got a very <laughs> neurotically constructed yeah it was great you know, <laughs> right. chart it's, researchers love OCD people I get people that say I'm an engineer and I and then I know I'm going to get some incredible table <laughs> of effects so yeah. that's that's really how it started and as as you now know it's it's gotten out of hand <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and actually as as you alluded to well yeah it took very detailed notes you know the book actually tracks your progress right one it's day constructed as as that 30-day experiment i mean very quickly i realized you know i set out just to take notes on what i was experiencing but very quickly i realized that i was actually writing a book because um, I gave myself the week off, the month off work, and I just said, "Well, write whatever you want." And so I ended up doing writing about the history, uh, you know, learning during the course of this month about the history of psychedelics. So I wrote about that. I uh, learning about the neurochemistry of psychedelics. So I wrote about that. Learning about brain science. So I wrote about that. Learning. I knew a lot of, already about the war on drugs because my area of expertise was um, the from a uh, sort of criminal justice reform and the prosecution of the war on drugs in the United States from the very founding of the country. And I sort of wrote about that and the history of the prosecution of drugs. And um, short answer, it's all about race as is everything in this country. Um, so I wrote about that. I wrote about my marriage. I wrote about my kids. And so I ended up with this book. I, I always say that this book is like the book LSD wrote because <laughs> what LSD does, to put it very simply, one of the things that LSD does in your brain is it seems to cause different parts of your brain that don't normally communicate to communicate in novel ways. So this is a book that has lots and lots of pieces that wouldn't normally be in the same book, but they're in, they are integrated in novel and, I think, interesting ways. I actually appreciate how you did that, how the book kind of weaves in and out between what you're personally experiencing and going into the history of the drug war and psychedelic history, and it kind of gives people both a personal and a historical perspective at the same time, and you kind of take people along the journey with you as you're learning about yourself, learning about the back history Thank there. You. Yeah, and so how did your experience line up with others that you read in, uh, in Jim's research with the transition well, day? And all? I think, you know, I did it exactly as I took it very seriously as a protocol. For me, it was written in the book. Got to do it just like Jim says. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I did the sort of three-day protocol, and um, I had, um, well, first of all, it was kind of amazing. I, Jim says in his book that one should be very careful and discreet about trying to find drugs, which is very good advice. But when you're sort of a <laughs> middle-aged mom, you don't have a lot of access to people. Who so I, <laughs> I very quickly I realized I couldn't be discreet because discretion was getting me exactly nowhere. So I started being very indiscreet about where I was going to get my drugs and asking anybody who could give me, uh, just anybody <laughs> I could think of. And then one day, miraculously, I got this package in the mail that was uh, this, it was a little package with lots of stamps on it, and the return address said Lewis Carroll. And in the package <laughs> was this lovely poem and a little blue bottle with instructions for use. And it was, it contained five microgram drops of LSD. Um, very high quality LSD, I think, diluted in, um, I think, probably distilled water. And I tested it to make sure it really was what it said it was because I'm not crazy. I don't just take things that come in my mail. Um, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> if you get nothing out of this event, 
the most important message is you if you if you ingest it you are obligated to test it first mm. nothing that you Very buy on the street should be ingested by you without you making sure that it is what you think it is yep. um and uh and then i i went on to have you know like it wasn't like i had a blissful month where all of my problems were solved but my immediate depression resolved very quickly and I had I had a really good month I had days that I was more irritable and days that I was less irritable I had days that I was more productive and days that I was less productive but by and large I was um, I experienced a kind of normalcy that I hadn't in a while mm. yeah and so based on your personal experience and all the reports that you've gathered um, and and a topic we'll revisit momentarily is uh, that these are not, of course, placebo-controlled trials and no. all this stuff. But based on, anecdotally at least, what are some of the benefits? I know you broke it down into kind of four broad categories, I believe it was. Did I? In, yeah, there was a chapter <laughs> in the book, and I, I believe it was emotional. Um, and, you know, I wrote some notes here. Let me refer oh, to the notes. Of me. That's very impressive. Emotion, intellect, relationships, uh, and physical, which oh, was okay. the most interesting Well, those are the I things found. that I was tracking. So, yeah. um, so emotionally uh like i said my depression resolved um in the course of that month um in terms of my relationship i it improved my marriage dramatically i mean you know i i for a long time i was saying that my marriage was at, at risk because of my depression and my husband points out that he wasn't going anywhere but i had the subjective feeling that my marriage was at risk which was in, uh, as painful as if mm. it had actually been so um Relationship? It was, um, yeah, emotional, intellectual. Oh, intellectual. Um, well, so intellectual, that's a lot of people are in, or are microdosing, we all know because, you know, better, stronger, faster, right? They're in this mm. because it makes them, um, enhances creativity, enhances focus. Um, I found that it did act to increase my capacity for focus in the same way that Adderall would or Ritalin, maybe at a lower dose, the same ability to focus, um, an ease of entering into that creative flow that was that's fairly hard to access when you're do engaged in a product, in a creative endeavor where you're just kind of completely focused on what you're doing and you're almost don't um, know what's going on around you. Um, and then physically, and this is where I, I don't know. So some of the things that are physically are like sometimes I would get a stomachache. That's pretty clear. Um, <laughs> But also, I had terrible pain when I started this experiment. I had frozen shoulder, which has anybody in this audience ever had frozen shoulder? Don't raise your hand. It's a, night you <laughs> <laughs> it's a nightmare. It's this excruciating pain in your shoulder. There's nothing wrong with your shoulder. It's completely inexplicable why, but you have this restricted range of motion and terrible, terrible pain. Mm -hmm. And during the course of this month, the frozen shoulder resolved. Now... It was probably a coincidence. It was probably just a matter of timing. Frozen shoulder does resolve. I had had it for about 18 months, but it was remarkable that it was during the course of this month that I experienced that resolution, and it was really, mm -hmm. you know, it was very hard for me to disentangle the physical, the, the being f free from pain for the first time in 18 months, plus feeling better emotionally, plus my relationship um, being better, plus I wrote a whole book in a month. Right. So it's kind of awesome. Yeah. Honestly. And one of the categories in her daily chart was number of words. <laughs> and, you know, and, and there is, I, I would say there is a connection, a body-mind connection, right? So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily, uh, it is surprising, I think, to see some of these physical things because we think of psychedelics as these 
mental right. processes, but um, it's also not surprising that if you have emotional and, and uh, mind benefits that the body would um, follow. I mean, and Jim, from your research, this well, isn't an isolated report, right? And again, these aren't placebo well, this control. Is, that I want to see what's nice is this is an isolated report of uh-huh. which I have a couple of thousand. Okay. And when you have a couple of thousand, when someone says it's an anecdote, you really just want to hurt them. <laughs> Please don't hurt me. <laughs> because what happens in real research is you give a drug to someone and then you ask them. The difference in my work is uh, they give themselves the drug and I ask them. So when you start counting up the, the anecdotes and what you find is a lot of different physical symptoms. Yeah resolve yeah there were some really interesting ones right like people reported having improvements after strokes and traumatic brain injuries um cluster headaches uh, i don't know yeah and and the nice thing is if you look at the high dose psychedelic literature there's nothing and so there's something different going on either with the low dose itself or that when you're giving a dose periodically and i just actually got a, a a beautiful letter from someone who had accumulated concussions over children's sports, uh, college level, and then he was semi-pro hockey. And he finally had enough of a concussion, so he was out for about a month. And then the coach said, you're fine, you can go back in, and he was, that day, he had another concussion. And that ended his career. Constant headaches, pain, dumbing down, a lot of things. And he was had really good insurance and was in a sports league. And he did all the things that he was supposed to do and nothing helped. It's just a letter I got last week. And he said, I took a high dose of mushrooms and for the first time felt one, no pain, and two, as if my mind was back. And then I followed that up with microdosing. And within a month, I was, again, able to take on an intellectually challenging job, which he indicated was just amazing. And so I wrote him back and said, tell me more. What's going on? And what he said is, he's pretty well done. But he says, if I stop microdosing for a couple of months, I get some small symptoms back. So I don't want to do that. And I'm also using cannabis twice a day. And I've also done some neurological training, brainwave training. And I thought the problem with this is this might be a total package of an incredible way to get over traumatic brain injury. But it's going to be almost impossible in a scientific system to research it because he's doing too much stuff. And, and people like him are not going to say, no, I think I'll be sure I'll stop the thing that's one of these that, that seems to make my life work so you can do research. Um, so we have, and we do have some other evidence of people without all this who have improved after strokes. And it's one of the studies I'd love to do or particularly love to have someone in some hospital do it. Um, But that's the kinds of things that are coming in that are hard to deal with because they're not mental. And particularly traumatic brain injury is, you know, the way you you quote, quote, discover it is you do the autopsy and you see the brain is damaged. 
Now, why is it that if a brain is literally physically damaged, that 10 micrograms of LSD every couple of days makes the symptoms go away? The paradigm hasn't been developed for that. So we're really doing edgy stuff now. And what's wonderful is just as, I mean, if you think about it, we're sitting in a building owned by a hospital discussing how to, to best use illegal drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to use illegal drugs. I really don't. I have no interest in breaking the law. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm an attorney. I have no interest in breaking the law. I didn't want to do it then. I certainly don't want to do it now. And what I am interested in is changing the law so that the law is an actual reflection of what harms people and what doesn't harm people. Um, the war on drugs harms lots of people. Drugs themselves harm some people under some circumstances and don't under others. And whether or not the drug is criminalized seems to have no relationship to the extent of the harm or not. So, um, but I am really, I am eager for there to be, I mean, the most important thing to me about this uh, recent, um, this, and, I, and I do think that my book had something to do with this, the, the sort of popularization of microdosing is the resurgence of interest in, in and uh, of the resurgence of interest in psychedelics altogether is an interest in testing microdosing and in yeah. studying microdosing. And that's what really what I, I, I have a lot of questions I'd like to see answered. Yeah. Like I'd like to see a real analysis of long-term benefit or any long-term risk. I mean, right. I want to know that. I want to know if there's any risk associated with long-term use of microdosing. I want to know... Um, what whether the benefits can be I don't know this could be a whole this could be a book about a placebo effect you know right and I think this is one of the big questions right like all these benefits that are being reported um, I mean it seems like as you've said Jim that you have enough anecdotes then you start to maybe say okay we have we're onto something here um, but you know to be fair, we haven't gone through like the you know the normal placebo control, double blind, all that. Well, we haven't because of the way that the drugs are control are scheduled in this country makes that That's virtually impossible to do. Yeah. So we've seen, you know, we've had research now at NYU, NYU, at UCLA Harbor, at Johns Hopkins, other places around the country, on specifically on psilocybin and um, large doses of psilocybin and. Um, tracking benefits it started with depression and anxiety associated with the end of life. Now it's moved on to PTSD and alcohol abuse and all sorts of smoking cessation. So we're seeing this research happening, which is really, really exciting. Um, but, you know, one of the peop things people always ask me is why psilocybin and not LSD? So there's no, the, the logical drug to study is LSD because that's where most of the research had been done before. But LSD has too much baggage. It has too much baggage from the point of view of the culture. It has too much baggage from the point of view of the government. So psilocybin, people don't know that psilocybin are magic mushrooms. They just hear psilocybin. It sounds like a medicine to them. They're, you know, it's much easier to get the permits for that. And it really does come down yeah. to that. So, um, uh, but I would really like to see even psilocybin microdosing studies. Yeah. I think that would help answer a lot of questions that I have. Well, there is a clever study that the Beckley Foundation yeah. is running that just recently uh, got a launched. A self-blinded study. Self-blinded. It's how they're getting around some of the legal hurdles. Right. So, that, they, and, yeah. Yeah, so the idea is they created a protocol where you wouldn't know whether you were microdosing or not. This is to kind of attack the, no the to try to address the placebo problem. So they created a protocol for you to blind yourself so that you don't know whether you're taking a microdose of psychedelics or not. The problem is inherent in a study that 
you, like that or like the, the long-term study that Jim has been doing with thousands of people involved is you cannot control what you're giving them. Right. So as we all know, when something is illegal and you buy it in the black market, you don't know what you're getting. I mean, sometimes you can do your best to test, and I want you to do your best to test. But it would be great if we could give people, you know, doses appropriate to right. their weight, to their size, if we could track all of these things. I would like, I mean, I, I would feel a lot more comfortable speaking about microdosing, considering microdosing, all those things, if we had that kind of research. Yeah. Well, fortunately, that's what's happening. Um, I don't even like, to, I don't really call what I've done research. It's really called exploration, which is... There's this something out there, and if you sail to it, you land. But you don't know what's there. And so when I say the event space, that's what I've been filling in. You know, there's palm trees here, there's a waterfall here, there's fishing here, there's a great beach, there's some rocks. And then the next wave of people already know all that. And they run in and they say, I'm only interested in the beach. And so they do beach research. <laughs> They do tightly controlled, double-blind beach research. And other people say, I'm only interested in the palm trees. And so what we're beginning to get now is the specialists are emerging who are going to do the very specialized research. And let me give you one example. I get a letter a couple of years ago. It said, I, Dear Dr. Fadiman, I know I owe you a report, but I thought this would interest you. It was while I was microdosing for the month, and this is a woman in her 20s. She's an art historian, and she's English. She said, I had my period, and for the first time in my life, it was normal. And I think, I don't care about the rest of your report at all. <laughs> but what's going on? <laughs> so I wrote her back and said, how much are you taking? What are you using? You know, kind of nice sciencey questions. And uh, what are you doing each month? And she wrote back, and she said, I only took it that one month. Since then, my periods have been normal. You have changed my life. Thank you. Wow. Okay. Now, her periods had been painful and crampy and emotionally disturbing. So I thought if that would be something people might want to research. And then because we got a lot of database, I called my co-researcher, Sophia Korb, and said, do we have any other people with menstrual issues in our sample? It was about 1,800 people then. And she said, after a few clicks on the phone, yeah, about 10. So she then looked at them, and a number of them had reported improvements. So she called someone who is a researcher in that area and said, would you be interested in looking at this data because we have some women who've reported great improvement and other people who haven't and other people who take microdose now once a month, a couple of days before their period. And the researcher said, well, that's because there's a number of reasons why people have difficult menstrual periods. So that's what we're doing is, in a sense, passing that on to the research people who not only know better questions, but are in the system to do the kind of research you're talking about. Now, the long-term research, that's tricky. The problem that we're facing is to move this from enough people so it looks like we have a phenomena, not a unique experience, into the research system. And 
the fact that the substances are hard to research because of the legal issues makes it hard because researchers really don't want to find out that there wasn't a phenomena. That's, that's perfectly good research, and when you are playing the science game, you're taught that a negative result is just as good as a positive result, but everyone else in the world says, don't ever buy that bullshit. <laughs> because you don't get any credit in the world for a negative result. So we're now getting studies of creativity with normals. We're getting depression studies. And we're starting to get some of these specialized physiological studies. And that's going to um, move things forward. This self-blinding study seems to be predominantly to find out if it's a placebo. Okay? Now, placebo is a funny word, and it doesn't really mean what it should. The, the word you want is natural healing response, which is we're designed to heal. That's mm -hmm. what we do. And anything that accelerates that is really cool. And it turns out that if you're being given a pill and you're told that it's a, uh, a graduate student, you'll have a less of an effect than if it's a physician, less of an effect than if it's a famous physician, less of an effect if it's a world-famous physician. Same pill. What's the difference? You. Okay, so that's a big variable in these studies. And as someone wrote us, they said, I don't care if it's a placebo. I haven't felt this good in 30 years. That's worth looking at. So as an explorer, you're not worried about the double-blind issue. The double-blind was invented so you could tell the difference between two pharmaceuticals. And it dropped away because the pharmaceutical manufacturers very often found there wasn't any difference between their products, so they stopped doing it for that. And heaven forbid some of you are on antidepressants. The data on placebo and antidepressants are that antidepressants are statistically different than placebo. Statistically different means if you have a big enough sample, there's a tiny difference. They're not clinically better, which means they don't have any more effect than placebo. And they're the most bought drugs in the world. I was used to say when I was on antidepressants that if you told me that this was a drug designed to make you fat and lose your sex drive, <laughs> and it had the side effect in some people of occasionally making them feel a little better. <laughs> that was actually a more accurate description of an SSRI than the one on the package. Yeah. Well, wow, and I thought I was mean about SSRIs. <laughs> well, you know, this is an interesting uh, topic too, right? In some ways, uh, dissatisfaction with um, mm -hmm. currently available pharmaceutical medications is what leads people, including yourself, to uh, try things like microdosing. Absolutely. Now, if I could go to my physician and get a legal drug that made me feel as good as um, I felt during the month of microdosing, of course I would do it. I would, you know, I don't want to be breaking the law. Right, right. Um, so to, to switch gears a little bit, I also, the, the topic we haven't talked about yet, of course, is the other side of it. We talked a lot about some of the benefits that we've seen mm -hmm. uh, in mood it's, and relationships. Um, but what about the potential risk? And, and two categories here. Uh, one category is um, acutely experienced uh, negative effects, let's say. Right. Uh, and then there's 
what we maybe don't know, which is the long term. So acute, I certainly noticed um, on the day that I microdosed an increased irritability. Not as irritable as I was before I was doing anything, but it definitely <laughs> would heighten. Um, I was more activated um, and uh, occasionally more irritable. Um, stomach upset. Uh, what else has been reported to you, Jim? You probably have a long list of things. Well, people would be happier if I had a long list, but I have a short list. <laughs> the main short list is um, we now recommend that if your symptom is anxiety, don't microdose. Mm. Right. If your symptom is depression and anxiety, which seem to be pretty interwoven, um, it looks like for most people it's beneficial. But pure anxiety, and here's two possibilities. One is it increases your anxiety. Two is it increases your awareness of your anxiety. <laughs> and those are very hard to distinguish. <laughs> we also have a, on our site called microdosingpsychedelicspplural.com, microdosingpsychedelics. And if I was selling something, I'd do very well at this, but microdosingpsychedelics.com. On the site, there's a little tab about drug interactions. And we ask people, if you're on something else while you're microdosing, let us know any interaction issues. Well, we have 185 items on that list now that don't interact with microdosing, that don't seem to interfere with microdosing. That includes almost every SRI. The one we have some question about is lithium. Mm -hmm. Lithium is a, an incredibly strong medication. It's for people with extreme manic depression. Most people who are on it hate it because they lose their mania. They also lose their depression. We know, I know people who literally have gone off the medication just so they could, in a sense, go crazy again. It turns out, at least with one person, that microdosing and lithium were a very bad combination. Um, again, we looked through our database and we actually wrote the other people and other people on lithium had no problem. But those are the, that's, that's, that's the big drug and that's the big not take. Right. Now, we also as, quote, researchers, and this is again because common sense, dear psycho, you know, microdose researchers, I'm pregnant, should I microdose? Dear whoever, the general rule of thumb is, on everything, the answer is no, when you're pregnant. Is there any information about pregnancy and microdosing or pregnancy and psychedelics? Yes. There are a great many fairly important, famous hippies who were created <laughs> <laughs> the night of their creation, so to speak, um, was when their parents were very high. So, but that's not good or bad evidence, that's just saying we haven't the faintest idea, don't do it. We also say if you are wanting to take much more than 10 micrograms, just please don't be in the study because what we found is that high-functioning autism, Asperger's, of which the valley is filled with successful people and a number of you, reported to us that 10 didn't do much for them, but 50 was just fine. Huh. And we basically said we're not, you know, that isn't the measuring world we're in. We have no quarrel with what you're doing, but we're not going to be reporting on you. And that's a weird one, right? Like, you know, well, these are people whose, um, whose brains have a lot of advantages and some disadvantages. Mm -hmm. And 
there's some wonderful research out on MDMA and high-functioning autism because a lot of people with high-functioning autism have difficult difficulty with social cues. When you, you know, when an eyebrow is raised halfway across the room, they don't get it. When a tone is changed, they don't get it. Sarcasm, they don't get it. So they often have hard social lives, and the the formal double-blind research with high-functioning autism says MDMA really helps. It really, like, um, those films where it starts in black and white and then one of the characters gets awakened and is in color, and then another, you know, <laughs> those, that's what they report. So that's a whole other world which, which microdosing doesn't seem to enter into. Yeah, it's just interesting how it doesn't have as much of an effect for people. On this well, that's what they say. Okay, right, sure. There's another weird one, too, that I remember seeing in, in your reports, which was uh, it was adverse reactions in people with red-green colorblindness. Oh, oh, sorry, I forgot about that. If you're red-green colorblind, <laughs> I love this because it's so geeky. It's bizarre. Okay, <laughs> okay, here we go, neuroscientists. People with red-green colorblindness report when they microdose for days after they have tracers. Huh. And that's more than one individual? Yeah. Interesting. In fact, this is why I love working with Sophia. We talked about this because we had three or four of them who dropped out of our study and told us why because they didn't like tracers. Tracers are when you see a light and then you move your eye away and you have a little tracer. Those of you who have been to Burning Man know what I'm talking about. Okay. And those of you who haven't been to Burning Man know what I'm talking about too. Okay. <laughs> Tracers usually go away with a conventional psychedelic when the conventional psychedelic goes away. Red-green, it lasts. So I said to Sophia, does this really make any sense? She said, let me call you back in a week. So I called you back in a week. She said, my friend with red-green colorblindness tried it, and yes, it's tracers. Huh. <laughs> my boys are both red-green colorblind. Ah. <laughs> I guess they won't be microdosing. <laughs> well... Unless, and then I have, we have other people that's, that say, I, I then went back into my files because I'd never paid much attention, but one of my early reports was a person who complained about what he said is, you know, the, the light problems and, and with, with overhead lights and so forth. He didn't know the word tracer, and I hadn't paid attention. And, but I read his report, and he said, it really is a problem, but I really like the benefits. Hmm. So it's a, it's a side effect. And one has to, uh, as you described, uh, antidepressants. They're great for certain things if that's what you want. I would love. I mean, it wouldn't be. It would be really exciting to know why. I mean, it would be wonderful yeah. to have if we could get to the root of what microdosing was doing in the brain, so that we could really understand right. what was happening. And yeah. well, let, let me let me actually add another word to brain. Body. Right. Because. Anybody know whether you have more neurons in your gut or in your brain? Sure. Gut. Okay. And the other thing you have in your gut is thousands of species of virus and bacteria all not only playing out their survival issues, but affecting your mental health. So there's a whole other world that we have the faintest idea, which is what is the effect of psychedelics on your biome? And I was just reading a report by someone who's very excited by the biome and mental health and did some research 
or a lot of research papers, and the one that, that I'm reminded of is people who improve their, their biome, probiotics, biotics, and better eating, depression went down 44%. 44% of them showed a decline in depression. That's slightly better than, anti, than antidepressants and slightly better than placebo. Hmm. So we, don't, we not only don't know what's going on in the brain, we don't know what's going on. Right. And <laughs> the little bit of research about the body that's going on with psychedelics is all in the brain, right. predominantly because they've got this great thing that shows pretty colors when your brain changes. And we don't have the equivalent that shows, you know, the virus is all going to one side and the bacteria going to the other. And then they do this little dance with LSD and they do a different dance with ayahuasca and so <laughs> forth. We have, you know, so we're really at the beginning of a whole other way of looking at science. Right. And the thing about microdosing is what is it going on that affects migraines, that affects menstrual problems, that affects, you know, brain injury, and that affects creat creativity. It also, by the way, for lots of people, and I love when we get results that nobody particularly asked for, most people in our sample, maybe a couple hundred at least that I've looked at, report that as they have been microdosing for a month, their health habits change. Their sleep pattern improves. Their eating improves. Uh, my favorite is a guy who lived on junk food. And he said, I looked at the menu, and by God, I wanted the salad. <laughs> yeah, I was really hoping I'd lose some weight, but nope. <laughs> I told Jim at some point, I said, if you, we could just figure out a way, the microdosing would be a weight loss tool. <laughs> you could make billions. <laughs> well, we also have someone who several people have said, if people knew what it did for libido, you could make billions. <laughs> so other than sex and eating... It also, by the way, people smoke less dope, smoke less cigarettes, drink less coffee, and have less alcohol. Hmm. So if you can think of a larger group of industries who are going to want to stop psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it that the, that the alcohol industry is now buying into the cannabis industry. Huh. You know, they're, they're, they're figuring it out. Mm. is don't, you know, follow your customer. Well, and yeah. uh, is microdosing an end to make uh, psychedelics become just kind of commodified and part of this? Uh, is I that mean, another risk? Of that's certainly something that I've noticed is, um, I mean, with this recent boom in psychedelics altogether, there is a kind of corporatization of, um, you know, if, if you are fond as I am of the kind of hippie history, there... Uh, there's a certain nostalgia that I, and I do think there is a kind of um, sort of microdosing is part of that better, faster, stronger tech world. Right. And I think the commodification is inevitable. I mean, Jim, you were telling me you get calls from people saying, how can I, you know, what, what's, what? Well, how can I invest? Are there any good investments <laughs> in the space? <laughs> now, you got to know the kind of little, um, you know, hedge fundy world, the psychedelic, you know, the industry. So there's the cannabis space. And it turns out there are now two companies for profit in the psychedelic space. And one guy owns a huge piece of both of them. And they're trying to get some kind of a lock on psilocybin and get it approved 
for medical use. Now, the, 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 the problem in the economics of psychedelics is if you give something a few times in a lifetime, that's not a good drug business. Okay? And I'm aware the chances of microdosing turning out to be the place which everyone will hate me for because it'll be commercialized seems highly likely. Mm. I don't know about the hating. I could manage without that. Um, But I've seen it in a couple of the the business magazines that couldn't care less about drugs. They're saying, gee, microdosing, you take something often enough so that if you price it at a you know, a thousand times its its manufacturing cost, um, you could do all right. So the the question is, is there any way to keep commercialization out of anything that could be commercialized? Right. Yeah. Shall we vote? <laughs> this is uh, actually probably a whole topic on its own, is what's going to happen <laughs> now in the world where psychedelics are becoming approved and how does capitalism interface with psychedelic medicine? Uh, and there's a whole lot of conversation in the community happening well, that around that now. presupposes a tremendous amount of optimism on your part. In a world where Donald Trump is president and Jeff Sessions is attorney general, I don't see psychedelics being <laughs> decriminalized anytime soon in the United right. States, even with all the research that we have that's really profoundly compelling research. Um, we may see some states, we're away, but I believe we're a ways away even from that. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I was doing uh, medical marijuana um, work for Drug Policy Alliance many years ago, 20-something years ago. And if you had told me that in 20 years we'd have ubiquitous um, recreational marijuana, I would... I would have doubted that. So right. maybe Maps we're is right on track. Twenty twenty one is what they're saying for yeah. MDMA. We'll see. So we'll It'll see be amazing. It, it would be. Um, bef- I think we probably are getting close to question time, but there's right. one other important topic I did uh, related to the unknowns and the risks, actually, before we go into that. Um, and I just wanted to touch on uh, sort of the unknowns related to the, the long-term risks. Right. right. Um, and so... And to frame this here, right, the conventional wisdom around um, psychedelics is that, okay, uh, psychedelics aren't physically uh, harmful. You can have a bad trip, but they aren't known to be physiologically harmful. Therefore, taking smaller doses also isn't harmful. Uh, However, with, of course, the microdosing protocol, the new factor in the equation is that you're adding frequency. So normally if you're taking, you know, typical dose of acid, you're not doing it. Uh, once in three-day cycles. But now we're adding this extra factor of, okay, I'm taking it, taking two days off, taking it, taking two days off. Um, In particular, there's concern. I know the science um, around this isn't really conclusive. It's very shaky at best. But there are concerns around particularly the 5-HT2B for uh, any uh, science geeks out there, receptor in the heart, um, regardless of the dose amount. But it's that frequency of activation that uh, people are questioning, like, hey, is this safe? Um, so I just uh, comments right. around that. <sighs> <laughs> just a wave of nostalgia of the um, the terrible dangers of LSD, blindness, chromosomal damage. The blindness was that people who would take psychedelics would look into the sun and burn their eyeballs out. Rare. <laughs> the chromosomal damage was true, as was true of aspirin and hundreds of other substances, and it has no effect on health. 
chromosomes break and repair. Um, the dangers of microdosing so far are that we don't have the faintest idea. Right. And then people say, well, how long have people microdosed? And I say, well, the people who I know, that I know um, very well, mm, 10 years and 20 years are the two that come to mind. Um, the 20-year one just won a national award um, in the business area of business she's in for her company, which sells a product at 30 to 40% above the competition, and that she's recently, in the last couple of years, moved from you know 17 employees to 80. Um, so if it's brain damage, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> and the other person runs a $200 million a year company. So those are the two I know. But that's really anecdotal. That's genuine anecdotal. But I would genuinely like, I would like to know. I mean, look, there right. are 5-HT2B receptors in the heart. There are receptors in the gut. I would like to know um, if there's, you know, any, if there's, you know, if there's one rat study out of, what is it, Finland, Russia? Right. And it's not a very good study. But I would like to know more about that. Me I would too. like to yeah. have, have that research done. Yeah, I personally absolutely. don't feel comfortable doing something regularly that is so unknown. And so right. one of the things that I'm most interested in is more research and decriminalization so that we can have real research and that we don't criminalize people for engaging in a behavior that affects only them. And to the extent that it affects anybody outside them, I mean, you know, it's pretty much purely positive if you but speak to the families of those people who have been driven to microdosing because of whatever <laughs> needs they have. Right. Sitting yep. on the street corners just hoping for a, a mushroom to come by. That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of what I was doing, you know. I thought, like, Berkeley, California, how hard would it be to get acid? <laughs> I, and I was very impressed she had trouble. <laughs> I know. And, you know, both. And since then, it's so funny because Jim warned me about this um, when you published a book, is that whenever I do an event or, or whenever anybody reads my book, I get two kinds of questions primarily, which is a good segue. I get... Can you get me drugs? <laughs> and let me tell you about my acid trip. And right. I don't like either of those. Neither questions. of those here. We can't get you drugs, and please don't get on the microphone telling us about your acid trip. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think we can open it up to questions now. Um, Should we raise the lights? Yeah, can we raise the lights a little bit? Alan, uh, are you around to do the microphone? And while we're getting sorted for that, I, other guidelines for questions. I just want to remind everybody what a question is. Um, so, uh, for those of you who don't know, a question usually ends in a question mark and usually has an inflection of your voice at the end of it. Uh, so make sure that if you're coming up here, you're asking a question, please. Um, all right. And, uh, the, and, the, and remember, the other part is, no, you don't need to preface your question by saying, first, I got to tell you about my trip. Right. <laughs> and... Um, Alan, right, why don't we start? And with if you're watching question. online, we're going to take questions from the uh, live stream as well. If you're tweeting with hashtag Psychsems, P-S-Y-C-H-S-E-M-S, tweet some questions and we'll take the best ones. If Elizabeth's around, uh, check in on those. Um, I want to I start off by asking where you think that psychedelics rank in the most important items that can help us transcend our ego and progress forward collectively as a civilization. Do you ask that because you're planning on slipping Donald Trump a Mickey? <laughs> <laughs> Take it away. 
I actually didn't get the question. Where psychedelics rank in, um, in, in... In how we can best transcend our egos and progress oh. forward as a civilization. Oh. <laughs> I mean, if I were an alcoholic, you know, if I was selling beer, I'd say, you know, there, there's these wonderful beer ads that say, more beer, more ears, something like that. Like, um, I think psychedelics are wonderful for people that don't like meditation. That and I think for people who like <laughs> meditation, they're also very good. That is the best quote you've made in a lifetime of magnificent quotes. That's my favorite. Okay, let's go. All right. Hi, thank you for coming tonight. My question is just if there's a crossroad between unbounded optimism and realism, where does that crossroad meet in the future for you regarding this kind of psychedelic unfoldment right now? Well, for me, it meets in my middle-of-the-night frantic emails to Jim about whether <laughs> that he thinks there's anything to these studies that show harm or these studies that show dramatic benefit. No, I, I think that, I mean, I think we probably have slightly different answers to that. I think I am excited by the interest. I am um, a little bit, I have... You know, I'm a little bit trepidatious as well, and I'm eager for more research. I am pretty much done with exploration, which is there's the island, go to it. And the kind of research that I hope we do is the kind of research that produces results that people can use. And that's, I know, kind of simple-minded and cliche-filled. But... Here's what we're doing, meaning my Sophia and I. We've kind of handled the problem of do people gain benefits and do they tell us because people who don't get anything out of it are less likely to write. So we have an obviously skewed sample. But our skewed sample at the moment is from 59 countries. So one of the things we know is it's possible to get psychedelics everywhere. <laughs> or at least in 59 countries. At least in 59 countries, right. And a lot of people send us things that are encrypted, so we don't know. So that's, that's, but that's people taking it for a month or less. And we have some people who have taken it months and months and months, and if you want to know about them, they're a very unusual group. But we're now doing, we, we're doing our final bit of research, which is we're writing to the, I think it's like 8,000 people who have written us, either taken microdoses and told us, taken microdoses and not told us, or not done anything. And we're asking them for, you know, simple little one-page fill-in-the-blanks of did you benefit or not in here are the following 15 areas. So we're doing the long-term study that no one else really can do because the other studies that are starting, where we started, with people who have either no experience or have never, you know, written it down. So we're, we're trying to make that next step more visible more quickly so that the questions of whether it's useful or not and where and how can be moved that much faster. So we're doing a kind of um, extra exploration and then we're, getting, we're both getting out of the business. So that's where it's moving. And the question of optimism and such is since my first LSD experience, let me tell you about my trip. <laughs> <laughs> Buy my book. 
it is not being optimistic to recognize the essential unity of human beings, animals, plants, and minerals. But it sure changes your world view when you realize that. Hmm. And you are much less likely to destroy something that is part of you. And that seems to me a good idea. And the way I say it Amen. is I've never met anyone who says, I'm going to take a hammer and beat this bastard to death. Because it's your thumb. <laughs> it's yours. When you realize that you're part of everyone else, you don't want to hit anyone else's thumb either. And when you realize that you know, all living things are in, in the same thing. Alan Watts used to say, your, your body does not end at your fingertips. So it isn't a question of optimism. It's a question of that people who realize that seem to live differently than people who don't. And I'd like there to be more people who live that way. And that's about as political as I get. And I agree a thousand percent with every political statement that she says. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I was just prompted by the, you brought up the commercialization and some concerns about it. And so I was just prompted to ask that last question I did to hear how you think like access and other aspects are going to be best set in the near future like what would that if you would want to expand upon that because you made it sound like commercialization in general is bad no, in my mind I mean, there's an aspect of just I think, accessing I, think, I don't think we're saying commercialization is necessarily bad i think we're saying that it can lead to um it can sometimes lead to troubling consequences but that um i mean i don't think i you know neither of us is in the business so i think you have to ask someone who's in the business that question yeah, i mean Something selling, somebody selling something for something is beneficial if the person gets it at a fair price. What does it cost to get a cataract? The little, the little lens. United States, $200. India, $2. Same equipment. Okay? So the question of commercialization is probably the problem that I think we're all anticipating is that the pharmaceutical industry as an industry does not seem to have the same high ethical standards that we would like. Mm. We should, mm. there's so, there are lots of people yeah. in line. Um, uh, this may be personal, and I'm sorry if I'm assuming, but why'd you stop if it Because it's illegal. Okay. Only. Yeah. If it were not illegal, I would not have stopped. Mm. And would you have the same response? If it were not illegal, she would not have stopped. What's... <laughs> <laughs> if it were not illegal, I would have probably gone and had some other kind of career. Mm -hmm. So I admit that things getting legal, I feel always a little nervous because mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know very, I don't know that world terribly well <laughs> in terms of the, the the consciousness world. But one of my friends said that enlightenment. One of my teachers really said enlightenment is always a crime. And what she was saying, because I didn't understand it at all, is that enlightenment allows you to see the, the weaknesses and difficulties in your own culture or in your own mind, in your own family, 
in your own religion. And so enlightenment always takes you out of being part of the system, regardless of how good the system is. So in some sense, the, the problem has always been for us people in the high-dose world is we were political radicals whether we liked it or not because we were really saying the whole notion that human beings are superior makes no sense once you have a, a, a larger view. One of the things I've liked about microdosing is it has not led to any political positions at all. Really bad people can microdose and they will probably stay healthier bad. So it, it, it's like I'm free from a certain set of issues that I find personally very important, but professionally at the moment, no. All right. Uh, hey, so uh, we touched on this for just a second, and I was hoping to expand just a little bit. Uh, the idea of how many neurotransmitters are now found to be made in the gut, the lion's share of serotonin and uh, sometimes dopamine, I guess. Uh, I'm I'm curious about uh, any kind of interaction with either uh, neurotransmitter uh, receptors or ne neurotransmitters themselves, modulation. Yep. Me too. Um, <laughs> again, the, one of the problems is you have to have somebody who studies neurotransmitters who wants to work with these little doses when the payoff is obviously easy in the high doses. But... Recently, in a uh, psychedelic psychiatry conference in Stockholm, I think last week, someone presented that the same activation of certain uh, of 5-2-A and some other parts of the brain that occur at higher doses occur at doses down to, not microdoses, but to around 25 mics. So the chances are that the same general effects, in the, at least in the brain, are not dissimilar. And so the question that that raises is, how about when it happens more often? And the answer is, we would love to know, and our little 5,000-person group will, will help. But I should let you know something that you probably don't want to know. Have any of you taken a medication for more than six months, any medication for more than six months in your life, okay? Do you know how many studies are done by pharmaceutical companies that last longer than six months? <laughs> Think less, <laughs> whatever number you had. <laughs> So we have incredibly little data on the long-term effects of anything unless it starts to show up harming enough people so that people notice. That's a That's really, a really good, good point. Yeah, very good point. So the, one of the nice things is if we do citizen science and we say, everyone who's taken psychedelics for more than 20 years, could you fill out a form? We could really do some wonderful research pretty fast. We have tens of millions <laughs> of people. Yeah, let me mention the, the, the tons of millions because it's actually not a ton, but it's millions. Um, since LSD was made illegal, this is the U.S. government figures, which you've got to be conservative because they're asking you to fill out a you know, form of what are the illegal things you've done over the past month. And you're in high school. 
<laughs> Since LSDs become illegal, 26 million Americans, just Americans, have taken just LSD. Now, my guess is that if I did the demographics of kind of literacy and education and power, that there'd be a higher percentage of people in that more educated, more powerful, more wealthy, healthier in the LSD group than in the less educated group. So that if we then look at what are the people in the United States that have already used psychedelics and why has there been so little pushback in the federal government is because the chances of the people in the federal government that are interested in these things having been like you is quite large. So we're dealing with a, a, a remarkable shift in the culture, which is it's really hard to think of a counterculture group that relates to psychedelics, since they're pervasive throughout the educated part of the culture. So things are happening quietly. Remember what happened in various places when marijuana became legal? Use did not go up. Cool. So um, the question I have is regarding some experiments you, Dr. Fadiman, did in the 60s was regarding the use of LSD as a problem-solving catalyst to give LSD to someone having focused specifically on one problem-solving area. Yes. Oh, problem solving, yes. And the question I had for you is like, has there been any progress in this area for the past years? And anecdotally, yes. how much success has you seen? How much success has okay. In the 60s, there was one study done using um, 100 micrograms or 200 milligrams of, of mescaline for problem solving of hard-edge scientific problem solving. Physics, chemistry, um, circuit design, architecture. I happen to have run most of that study, so I know it. And 48 problems, 44 solutions. Pretty good. Because you couldn't get into the study unless you had failed on the problem for over three months. So that's what he's referring to. What happened with that? Well, the government, actually, that was when the government stopped us. We got a letter one day which said, as of the receipt of this letter, your research, your, your experimental exemption to do research is over. We had four people in our little treatment room who were with eye shades and music and they were about to get into solving their problems. The government just said, your research is over. Now, I committed a crime. I said, I was the youngest person there so I could do this. I said, I think we got the letter tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, what happened to that research is a number of people over the years have said to me, I'd like to replicate your research, some people in England, some commercial people, and it hasn't been replicated in the scientific literature. But some of you are familiar with Silicon Valley and that there are people in Silicon Valley who know that research. And there's an enormous number of companies who owe their vastly inflated stock values <laughs> to, as Ken Kesey used to say it, a little dab will do you. <laughs> and those of you who have been to Burning Man, 
may have wondered where some of those art projects are envisioned. And as uh, as I remember, there's one small company that that, uh, phoned me once and said, uh, we'd love to meet with you, you know, and every uh, once a month we actually get together and would you like to meet with us then? So this was a company that kind of put microdosing onto their schedule. Microdosing or macrodosing? Well, I didn't push it. (laughs) 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 But again, um, 26 million people have used LSD and some of them have used them for creative problem solving. And it's very helpful because, again, one is able to hold in consciousness more variables simultaneously so that one can see more of a problem. And the reason our problem solving was so successful is people had put everything into the problem. They were people being paid to solve that level of problem. And they had the answer somewhere, but they didn't have it together. So that the use of microdosing, which is very, uh, as I read all the articles, it's incredibly popular in Silicon Valley, except that I also know it's popular in high schools in India, where I do get mail is that it allows not better creativity, but more time-focused. And that turns out to be beneficial for the people who report it. And again, the nice thing about microdosing is if it's helpful, then so far we don't know enough of its defects to say you should be too careful. But we also know if it isn't effective or pleasant or useful or beneficial, you stop. And we know that the physical substance leaves the body within a couple of hours. So it, it, the, inadvertently, that three-day thing turns out to be an enormous safety valve if there is what's called tolerance, which is the buildup in the system. Hello. I, I was wondering, you talked about the importance of testing your drugs, or you know, especially LSD. I'm curious, do you have any websites or any way or any particular device to test your drugs. The best place I think to get, that I I like to send people to get, and this is particularly for testing Molly, I don't know if they do LSD, but is dancesafe.org. They're terrific. They do wonderful work at raves, at parties, at um, electronic music festivals, and they do MDMA testing, and they provide MDMA testing kits, and I, I don't know what other kinds of testing kits they have, but they're the best because um, it's, it's a mitzvah to buy from them. Um, you can buy LSD testing kits on Amazon.com. You can buy, yeah. and um, You know, they're not going to be like as good as, a, as, as in a lab, but, they're, but I found, I just, you know, I ordered the whatever one that seemed like, you know, yeah. had the best reviews and it worked fine for me. Yeah, yeah, the ones there's, there's, they're basically... I mean, Amazon is an interesting place. One is you can get LSD testing kits, or at least two companies. Dance Safe is one, and there's another. And it tests whether it's an indole, meaning an LSD-like substance, or not. And the one dangerous substance out there, which is active at the same level, microdoses, as LSD, are called N-BOMs, N-BOM-DMT. General suggestion is don't. Hmm. The problem is... Slightly more than you, slightly more than an interesting high, has a side effect of death. Hmm. For that, you could wait and get some 
you know, so test Dan's, it. Dan Safe for Molly. Yeah. But Dan for, Safe for, has a good test. If you go to Dan Safe, uh, they'll give you four different thing. reagent yeah. kits that will test for a different spectrum. And this isn't, um, it's not going to tell you every substance that's in there. It's not completely foolproof. Um, but it's at least uh, w- one step of harm reduction. It can, to tell cl- you. it can rule out some of the more dangerous things. Yeah, right. and, and mm-hmm. basic you just have to sacrifice one of your doses. Right. <laughs> or not a whole dose, maybe a microdose. Yeah, sacrifice a microdose. Sacrifice yeah. a microdose. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> question from the internet. Hi, yeah, I'm live tweeting the event on Twitter, and um, I'm asking one of the questions from social media. This is from at Achiro Hero. Um, this is addressed to Dr. Fadiman, but we can generalize it for everyone. Um, can you, Dr. Fadiman, talk about your outreach to poor people and people of color and how you've helped their mental health the challenges slash trauma that are related to classism and racism? And just for some additional context, this person had okay. tweeted, <laughs> as I do my research, I'm amazed at how blasé white people are about talking about this without fear of criminal okay. repercussions. So let me, let me do, do this it. first. So first sure. of all, um, Dr. Fadiman does not do outreach. He does not... He does not give people drugs he does not encourage people to use drugs that would be illegal (laughs) (laughs) he he might a little what dr fadiman does is in reach so people send him their reports um what i in my book i speak a tremendous amount about the war on drugs and the um the what i the um, basis of the war on drugs in this country which has always been about race and I um, and what I what's incredibly important to me that people understand is that in a very real way this is a book of privilege because and the reason I wrote it is because I am a person of privilege when I was experiencing these benefits from microdosing I realized that I was in a very unique position I was a financially secure white woman living in the state of California. For me to write a book about my experience with using an illegal drug is a very different thing than someone in a different community, say a young man of color, for example, could, would not feel the same sense of security and safety writing that book. And that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because I felt like I had an obligation. And what I've always taught my children is that their privilege requires them to act. And you cannot, um, because of the myriad things you get because of your privilege, you are thus obligated to take risks that people who aren't in the same positions of privilege cannot afford to take. So um, uh, so that's really what um, one of the, that's sort of the most important reason that I wrote the book. But I think it's, um, it's also equally important to stress, and I stress this over and over again, it is dangerous in the society where Jeff Sessions is the attorney general to blithely engage in the consumption of illegal drugs. 29 pe- million people have done it, but it is very different to do that when you're white and when you're black, frankly. You know, the things that we, when you talk about what um, what behaviors are most likely to get people arrested, there are millions of people serving time for smoking weed, you know? So I think that's the most important thing that in terms, it's uh, that I know I realize you were, that this, your viewer was asking a question about access, but I think far more important than access when we talk about race and class on this issue in particular is risk. And so I just really want to stress that. Like I say to my son, um, when you're a little white kid and you smoke a joint on the streets of Berkeley, 
one set of consequences can happen to you. One of your friends who's black, who's brown, they can have a whole different set of consequences, and you have to be constantly cognizant of that disparity. Now, the others? Right. Fortunately, we're still 4% of the, of the human race. And Jeff Sessions is an even smaller percentage. Human race. Okay. <laughs> Let's not push it. Okay. Our survey actually didn't ask people their ethnicity or their income. And the two popular substances that people talked about were LSD and mushrooms. Now, mushrooms have a particular property, which is they do not know they are illegal. <laughs> and psilocybin mushrooms grow everywhere. He gives me such ajita because I was a criminal defense attorney, and I'm always like, he doesn't encourage you to use, to find, to provide other people. But I have a defense Next attorney. Question. <laughs> and she just said she'd take a bullet for me. <laughs> the fact is that psychedelics have been around considerably longer than written language meaning people using them. They are, we're talking a lot of different plants. I was just reading actually a fascinating article that was saying, why is it that not only there are well over 150 species of mushroom that have psilocybin, but they are in different families. As if psilocybin was a solution found again and again by nature and the article suggests it was to make insects go wee and go away. Don't know. That seems to me an assumption. <laughs> but these substances exist. Um, the the DM people, DMP people like to say, if DMT is illegal, everyone in the room is in violation since it's in their cells. So we're dealing with some... So the laws, I think we all know, have nothing to do with anything remotely resembling science. As you've pointed out, the United States laws have had a huge amount to do with race, like a lot of other covert laws. As someone has pointed out to me, the number of people using psychedelics who happen to be people of color, South America, are many, as well as a lot of people in Africa and so forth. So we're dealing with, with not a simple problem. We're dealing with a complicated you know, biosphere of psychedelics, a medical sphere of psychedelics, a legal sphere which includes psychedelics where they don't belong. And it's a mess. And individually, it's quite true. If you're, in a, if you're the kind of person who likely isn't going to get arrested for existing or for driving, you're probably the kind of person that will not, be bo will not be arrested for psychedelic use. That's why you're all here and not busted. Are we going to solve that by making psychedelics more legal? It will help. Certainly, um, you know, as marijuana has become legal, one of the things they're doing is saying, well, what about all the people who are currently either in jail or have records about marijuana? Maybe we should take that away.
you know there's a sanity that is starting to pervade the the plants that get, that are of more interest than for you know for diarrhea and headaches there's just a level of sanity that is starting to appear and it will not appear first in the United States don't worry <laughs> yeah, I think we've got time for probably one more question. Why don't um, we why don't we take another question and then we'll take the individuals who have the questions who've been waiting so patiently online just jump up on the stage afterwards and yeah. we'll answer questions individually. And I would ask I'll let everybody else yeah, that's a great idea. And I also would ask, after we answer the last question, uh, please just stay in your seats for a quick moment so we can say a few words at the end before shuffling, uh, just so people next to you can uh, hear the last things to say. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, good evening. My name is Sky. Thank you so much for being here, and, and it's an honor to be on this journey with you. Um, so I have somewhat of a physiological question, the interaction of microdosing. Um, with evidence supporting that Psychedelics okay, in general hyperconnect our brains and make us more receptive to information that our perception can receive um, and that we can process, basically. D- does, that th- does that do the same to our body, such as if we're like on a juice fast, for instance? If we're microdosing during that juice fast, would we absorb more of those macronutrients, just as like an example of what possibly could happen if, to our bodies? If you're microdosing during a juice fast, <laughs> That's just as an example. There's so many as more an applications, of right. course. Okay, okay, I get the idea. For example, during a juice fast, would you absorb more microdoses more quickly or more effectively? Or if you were would on you a ketone? Nutrients. Does the microdoses make you absorb more right. nutrients? And the answer is. Who knows? You know the answer. <laughs> we don't know. Which is zero research, <laughs> zero interest in that particular research. <laughs> and zero possibility of getting it funded right now. And citizen science will have answers which you may or may not believe. Hmm. Which is, um, if those of you who wanted, you know, basically people, microdosing just seems to make the system, when it's working, work better. It's kind of like water. Right? What's the effect of water on your kidney? It makes the kidney work better. What's the effect on your toes? It makes your toes work better. What's the effect of too much bad? Okay, so we're, we're, we're dealing with something which may be very simple. That may just be like a vitamin. You know, take vitamin D. Those of you who are into the vitamin world. Vitamin D affects like 35 different things. So probably it's okay. And if you take too much of it, it turns out very hard to do. But yes, you can take too much of it. You can, take, you can probably microdose too often. You can probably do anything. There's always a way to harm yourself. Okay? <laughs> and if you don't believe me, read Irowit. <laughs> where people say, well, what if you take carpet cleaner and blow it up your nose and then smoke a lot of dope? And the answer is you get really sick, and then you write a report, and Irwin publishes it, and someone else says, what brand of carpet cleaner did you put up your nose? (laughs) (laughs) So we're never going to have anything that is safe in the way that people fantasy something is safe. There is always risk, and Shulgin, I think, said it very nicely, is don't put anything into your body that you don't know something about. Well, that's a great 
last comments. I, I would agree. Um, so, yeah, well, the rest of you guys can come up. Um, if you enjoyed this show tonight, please consider becoming a supporter of us on Patreon. We have a table outside. You get a free T-shirt if you sign up as a supporter at 15 a month or more, and you will help us do more of this. Um, but thank you all for being here. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Thank you, Jim and Ayala. stairs right there. Stairs. There's a set of stairs off to the left. Thank Let's you. Go. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, before I say anything else, and since I am a lawyer who has taken an oath to uphold the law of the land, I am obliged to repeat the warning that even a microdose of a Schedule One substance is a crime. And uh, who am I to suggest that you commit a crime? I'm really not doing that. But... If you are intent on becoming a criminal, well, then you should probably get all of the information about what you're considering as you can. Thus, this podcast. And uh, I hope that satisfies you narcs who also enjoy these podcasts. We're all in this together, you know, and uh, I realize that you aren't all bad guys. So. <laughs> Hell, after all, I was once a Republican, but look how well I turned out after I found psychedelics. <laughs> anyway, uh, there were a couple of things that uh, Jim Fadiman said just now that uh, really resonated with me, and so I want to point them out in case they didn't stand out to you. The most important one from my perspective, once the uh, safety and legal issues are covered, is that after completing the recommended 30-day protocol, you should listen to your own body. And if you do decide to continue microdosing, well, then you can adjust the protocol to fit your own situation. I guess that the uh, one little piece of anecdotal evidence about the pros and cons of microdosing that I can add to the pile is uh, from my own experience with microdosing. And while I've microdosed with LSD a few times when I was writing computer code, my most extensive experience came when I was completing the final draft of my book, The Spirit of the Internet. Prior to publication, I sent copies of the manuscript to about 20 people, most of whom marked it up and gave me some important feedback. I then took that pile of manuscript edits and used them as a guide while over a six-month period I wrote the final draft. And during those six months, I was microdosing LSD. My protocol was uh, a little bit different from the one we just heard, and uh, it took a few weeks of experimentation before I settled on a method that worked really well for me. And don't bother to ask what that was, because it most likely won't be the one that works best for you. Anyway, uh, what you may find interesting, though, at least from the standpoint of how these substances uh, can affect creativity, is to compare the spirit of the internet with my novel, The Genesis Generation. Now when I wrote the novel, instead of microdosing on LSD while I wrote it, I smoked cannabis the whole time. So if you compare those two books, I, uh, well, I think that you're going to find it pretty obvious which one had an LSD boost. My novel, however, uh, <laughs> well, it's just the story told by a stoner. <laughs> and I think it's a lot more fun to read. So until next time, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.